Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Spring Fair 2022, the UK's most diverse, relevant, and exciting buying destination for wholesale home, gift, and fashion. Spring Fair 2022, refueling retail. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the interview series here on the Retail Exchange podcast. I'm Carl McKeever. In this special episode recorded at Spring Fair 2022, we sit down with serial entrepreneur and Green and Black's co-founder, Joe Fairley. I was once approached about doing Dragon's Den and, and I value my anonymity far too much. And I'm also just not that kind of tough, mouthy TV material I just it just never appealed to me I am much keener there is a great deal of talk now about the qualities of empathy being so important in business and actually I have people working for me who've been there for years and years and years because they like working for me because I am a good fair kind understanding and at times tough when I need to be employer but I'm not ever ball-breaking the tough for the sake of it. Leaving school at 16 with six O-levels, through hard work and determination, Joe went on to become the UK's youngest ever magazine editor, before setting out on her entrepreneurial journey by launching Green and Blacks in 1991. A brand born in recession, she is well-placed to inspire others during difficult times, as we navigate the waters of a pandemic. Here, she talks to us about the secret sauce for keeping it special, the importance of regarding it all as an adventure, why it will probably all be okay, what companies must do to attract consumers that are increasingly judging brands on their values and choosing to spend their money with brands that are aligned to their own world's view and whose products are also seen to be doing good. Hello, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. So the question I'd like to ask first of all is, is please talk to us about your early years as a female entrepreneur. Strangely enough, I didn't even realise at that moment I was an entrepreneur because I think I got a lot of my business experience being a magazine editor. When I had a team of 26, I had a budget, I had, you know, promotional money to spend, I had a page rate, all of these things. And I kind of didn't realise it was a business at the time. (laughs) But it meant that when I actually came to become an entrepreneur, it's like, oh, yes, I understand this. You know, I'd cut my teeth in what I thought was a creative role. And actually what I've learned at the end of the day is that business is business is business. And it doesn't matter if you're selling magazines or chocolate bars or widgets or customer relationship management services, at the end of the day, the principles are the same. So in your early life then, whilst you were uh, in that editorial role, was that kind of almost a, a cloak of corporate world that was giving you that sort of status, I guess? The first publishing company I worked for wasn't at all corporate. And actually, I suppose there, my particular boss had a very interesting philosophy, which is that if you create a great product, they will come. If you build it, they will come. And I actually really, really believe that. The second organization I worked for was IPC Magazine's huge, massive magazine company, much more corporate, much less kind of me, actually. Mm. Um, but it was it was also a very good training for understanding that magazines have to make a profit. 
So when you decided to cut loose and go your own way and uh, start Green and Blacks, what were some of those early struggles that you first found? I think one of the biggest struggles initially was, you know, I was in business with my husband and we'd just got married and suddenly I realised that actually we might end up just having a business, not a marriage, because when you have a business with a partner, it kind of, there's a great risk that it spills over into every area of your life and we would be waking up at two o'clock in the morning and going, I've had this really good idea. So... I had to set some boundaries and basically after about the first month or six weeks I realized this is not going to work. So what we would do is we would put dinner in the oven for my teenage stepchildren. We would go for a walk around Notting Hill where we lived at the time. We would spend an hour walking up hills and down hills and I would have to stop and lick the window of Kath Kidston's first shop in, you know, in her honor. But During that hour, we kind of quarantined our business talk so that it meant that when we got home, we were able to just be a couple and and have a marriage as well as a business. So I think the biggest challenge at the beginning was just literally setting those boundaries. Plus, because all our money was tied up in stock and because it was, you know, my 20 grand that bought that first two tons of green and blacks, I had to continue to work as a journalist to have money of my own to spend because there wasn't enough left over to pay me so it did make for some very very long days so it sounds as if it was quite necessary to have a form of compartmentalization of those different worlds yes i think it was well except actually i didn't compartmentalize it because all i did was i had two phones on my desk and i would literally be on the phone to the editor of you magazine who i was discussing ideas with and the other line would go and i'd have to go hold on d hello green and blacks because for nine years i rang the customer service line there uh, because i like to hear what my customers are saying about my business it's a very good way so aside from uh you know those family boundaries which were all important what were some of the other challenges which were facing you in the early days fast growth is really hard to manage you know most businesses it takes twice as long and costs twice as much to get where you think you're going to be It's like the acceleration chart 0 to 60 for a car. If you look at that, it's all flat at the beginning and then it massively goes up at the end. And I always say to people that actually your business is probably going to take you twice as long and and cost you twice as much as you thought. But Green and Blacks was the exception because we got supermarket listings very, very quickly because as it happened, Lady Sainsbury had our chocolate at a dinner party and showed it to her husband and that was how we sort of got our Sainsbury listing. So cash flow was a massive challenge because we were actually growing very, very fast and all of our money was tied up in stock. So it meant that we didn't have a decent promotional budget, advertising budget, couldn't recruit new staff. It was very, very challenging. And as you gradually, you know, brought on more team members and became more established, how did your role change within that mix? Well, I I retained my role as kind of, I did PR, marketing, product development, customer service, branding and design, you know, all of the kind of, I like to call them the sexy bits, and then the very high level sales calls. And for nine years, I did that. Right. And then somebody came in and we took private equity investment. And the very key thing about that particular cohort of investors was that they bought money to invest in talent because actually... You know, we had all reached the point where we'd we'd reached our 
our maximum potential with the brand. And it was fantastic. We had a new financial officer, we had a, a new CEO, and we had an amazing marketing director, uh, Mark Palmer, who Craig and I were a bit disturbed about the fact that he came from Burger King as a couple of vegetarians, but he turned out to be the most amazing guy to power the business forward. So at that point, I actually didn't have a role. But then when Cadbury's came in about five years later, they could see the virtues of having the founders engaged with the brand because they understood that nobody quite knows the DNA of a brand like the founders. So do you see your, your role then and possibly even now still as a brand guardian in many ways? In some ways, yes. I mean, I think that one of the challenges when you sell your business is it's very tempting to throw your toys out of your pram over every single little micro change to your business just because you feel so emotionally involved. But actually, we've always saved our firepower for something that might have knocked the brand off course. And they respect the fact that we don't throw our toys out of our pram randomly. And new people that come spend time with us literally learning about the brand from day one. And have there been any of those such crises moments where all of that hard work risk being undone by, you know, uh, some sort of casual uh, occurrence, which didn't seem a big deal at the time, but then unfolded into something quite dramatic? No, I think we managed to head them off at the pass. <laughs> right, OK. So that's a skillful interventions. Yes, I think my husband would have made a great diplomat, actually. Right. I'm a little more hot-headed. I, have, I generally have to go and shut myself away somewhere. <laughs> Now, in, in business, and especially today, there's a lot that's made around, you know, women in business and the role of females as, you know, heads of industry and captains of industry. Back then, times were different. For you, how was it being a woman pioneering and, you know, really making waves in a new area? Again, I think that because I'd cut my teeth in magazines, in women's magazines, where it was an active advantage to be a female at the helm of the magazine... I'd been somewhat cocooned from sexism. And then by the time I came to found my own business, I was very confident mm. and, and kind of, you know, you didn't want to mess with me, really. So you were clear um, about what was, I was acceptable or yes, not? Yes, exactly. But, but I have subsequently, I, I was writing a, a long series a column for many years for The Telegraph called Wonder Women. And I became a bit of a born-again suffragette then. Um, because, the, you know, the, the, the constant stories about women being held back in business, women encountering daily sexism, etc., you know, it's still going on. Mm. It, it has to stop. But I have great faith that as the dinosaurs at the top of the tree die, then actually we will end up with a, a fairer and uh, much more equal world. So I guess to take a, a, a pun almost on the business, that, that's an organic process. But do you think that women should be given any special treatment to help them get to those more senior positions? I didn't used to think that there should be quotas on boards, for example. And then I found myself taking part in the most extraordinary event. Luckily, I, a friend of mine was there covering it for a newspaper and was able to witness this. But I was invited to be on a panel about board quotas. And it turned out, without anyone realising, without me being told, without my person who'd booked me for this panel being told, that actually it was a UKIP initiative about board quotas. And they were paying lip service to the idea of 
there should be many, many women on boards. Do we want quotas or not? Mm-hmm. And then as the evening unfolded, the rampant sexism in the room just seeped out and then it flooded out. One of my fellow panel members was Claire Gerardo, who was at the time head of the College of GPs. The treasurer of UKIP, who had filtered into the room with Nigel Farage at one point, um, stood up and said, out of, randomly, out of the blue, well, it's a well-known fact that women can't play bridge, which was completely irrelevant to our discussion. And Claire Gerardo leapt to her feet and said, I'll have you know, my mother is the bridge champion of Malta. Excellent. And the whole thing became utterly surreal at this point. And actually, there was just so much sexism in the room. And that was the point at the end when I realized, actually, while people like this are still running the world, that actually, although nobody I know wants to be given a job because they're ticking a box, we need to be given these opportunities to prove ourselves while that sexism is still there. The popular caricature, I guess, and especially when you look at, you know, business TV programs or you see people in the media, that for a woman to get to a senior position in industry or running companies, that you have to be the queen of mean and you have to be strutting and you have to be this big shoulder padded thing, which is something to be feared. Now, you strike me as having a different style, but what's your take on that? Well, television is not real life. And... um, I was once approached about doing Dragon's Den and and I value my anonymity far too much and I'm also just not that kind of tough, mouthy TV material. I just, it just never, never appealed to me. Um, I am much keener. There is a great deal of talk now about the qualities of empathy Mm. being so important in business. And actually, I have people working for me who've been there for years and years and years because they like working for me because I am a good, fair, kind, understanding and at times tough when I need to be employer. But I'm not ever ball-breakingly tough for the, for the sake of it. So when you found yourself in those situations in big corporate pitches where you were, you know, sending your chocolate into a room of potential dragons, let's say, and you were, you know, there passionately representing your heart and soul and the product in front of you, you know, you, I could imagine there's a range of responses, you know, people looking at you and thinking, well, who, who is this woman and she, where does she come from? <laughs> okay, this is confession time. I used to have to take my sales director with me because I'm really bad at doing margins. So when it came to the tough negotiation, I will willingly admit that I handed it over to my sales director because when they started to say, what kind of margin can you give? I used to say, I don't do sums. That's what Alan's for. And I think that actually it's a great thing in business to know what are your strengths and what are your failings and actually not pretend to be able to do the bits that you can't do because basically you always know somebody who can. I suppose one of the things that people always do is they look back on a a life well lived and and especially a successful career is what do you wish you had known sooner in business? Gosh, that's that's actually a very hard question. Um, I wish I'd known it was all going to be okay, actually. You know, that, that, that I hadn't had the many, many sleepless nights over cash flow that kept me awake and probably shortened my life. But you just don't know. And I, I think, actually, I think the most important thing is to regard it all as an adventure. 
Mm. And also that it is not, you may feel like your business is your baby. You may feel it's the be all and end all of life, but you've got to have a life as well. Mm. You've got to have perspective. And I'm a great believer in now taking care of myself because I know that I'm taking care of my business at the same time. I can take, I have the energy and the strength and the physical resources, the mental strength to be able to look after them. You know, it's it's like that in-flight message where, you know, they say if the mask drops down, then uh, you have to put it on yourself before you look after anybody else. And I, I do see business leaders basically burning out and running on empty. And you're not doing anyone, least of all yourself, any favours if that happens. As a company, your brand was built, I think, with a strong foundation of ethics. Yes. And... What were some of those kind of uh, emotional questions or even heartstrings that came along when you were approached by a big corporate who wanted to show interest in acquiring your business? To be honest, there were none because Cadbury's who acquired us like to think that they invented corporate social responsibility. And if you look at the story of what they did with their workers in Bourneville and, and taking care of, of, of them, they kind of did. They were one of the very, very first businesses to actually care for them their employees so that felt very natural then we were acquired by Kraft in 2011 and that was very uncomfortable at the beginning until we realized that actually like most businesses they wanted to change too they were changing tack and and you know the hugely encouraging thing is that it's becoming the norm it's becoming the the only acceptable way in business is to be fairer is to have values is to be more environmentally sustainable. It's it's something that customers are asking for, but it's also something that you've got to do in order to attract talent nowadays. You know, I think 83% of young people say that they want to work for a company which allows them to express their social and environmental values. So if you want to be a company that attracts talent, you have got to smarten up your act. Hmm. And I think it's very evident, isn't it? You only have to look at any of the TV advertising by the big corporates these days and their CSR, corporate social responsibility credentials, are all being massively uh, elevated. Uh, the good that they're doing for the planet, society, or even tackling specific issues yes. has really come to the fore. From a Green and Black's perspective, this is something that you've been championing for donkey's years. Yeah, we thought it was all going to happen in about five years. <laughs> didn't. <laughs> so at that time, and look, Green and Blacks is celebrating, what, 31 years now? Yeah. Did you see yourself almost in that same class of new business leaders, someone like Anita Roddick, for example? No, I mean, we, it was the way we naturally did business. And actually, Anita was my mentor. She was my champion. I'd met her through my journalism and we'd become friends. And she introduced me to, uh, because we all of us in business at that point trying to do good through doing business did I think feel like lone voices in the wilderness most of the time we were you know little lone salmon trying to swim upstream and so Anita enrolled me in something called the Social Venture Network which was an organization American based but with members from all over the world of it was quite a small organization at that point but it was people who were trying to do good through doing business and so we would get together in places, you know, London or Boston or Upper Mountain in Italy or whatever, Zurich. And we would all meet and we would share our experiences. We would buoy each other up. We would inspire each other. We would have inspiring speakers, etc. And 
go away feeling fired up to keep fighting the good fight. And it was people like Anita and Gordon. It was an amazing guy called Gary Hirschfeld who sold his Stonyfield farm brand to Danone. It was Ben and Jerry, you know, themselves. And in a paradoxical kind of way, this almost takes us back to Cadbury because the original founders of Cadbury were part of that great social movement of the time, which was about, you know, really recognising how uh, bringing welfare benefits to workers and actually a better quality of life would in turn give a, a, a happier workforce. Exactly, exactly. But we did, at the time, feel quite out there. <laughs> And people looked at us like we were mad. You know, we talked about trying to do good through doing business. And, and it was just like you got this blank expression. That people literally didn't understand what you were talking about. So what's the secret sauce for keeping it special? The brand DNA clearly will evolve and, and move across time. But to remain focused, that's a special quality in itself. What does it take? I think it takes knowing who you are as a brand. You know, we, we have a great high quality product with Green and Blacks, which is presented with design flair and then those strong values kind of underpin the whole thing and it's it's a kind of alchemical magical mix actually we haven't compromised our values we haven't compromised our quality and and those are key you know i always say to people who want to start a a more sustainable business that they've got to make sure that whatever they're doing tastes as good as feels as good as you know looks as good as anything else that's out there because people might try it once otherwise but they won't try it again unless it's delivering on all their expectations for any kind of product basically. I guess for brands to remain relevant they have to also keep reinventing themselves and, and if not necessarily through uh, changes in the course of what their brand expression is about but through their product range. So are there any innovations which Green and Bracks are working on which we can look forward to? Um, there are always innovations, but I can't possibly share them with you. But I was very, very proud of the advent calendar for the first time, uh, which we did last year. So, yeah. And, and, you know, we have innovated. For example, we realised until, I don't know, maybe it was about 10 years ago now, but like all Easter eggs, Green and Blacks had plastic around the egg to protect it because uh, you don't want your eggs smashing on the way to your retailer. But somebody, some bright spark, and it wasn't me, realized that if we made the chocolate thicker, we could just put it in a cardboard box, a cardboard kind of pyramid box, and it wouldn't break on the way to the shop. So that was a real innovation. We were the first people not to use plastic packaging. And it was one of those kind of, duh, all you have to do is to make the chocolate egg thicker moments. Mm. There's lots of private label brands out there in the confectionery market now, people I'm sure who are uh, imitators to your own products. What would you say to a consumer who's faced with a, a choice which might be essentially price-driven for something that looks essentially the same? Well, one of the great things about Green and Blacks is that we got economies of scale very early on. We were very, When you're very successful very early on, your unit cost goes down and down and down. So we were able to stay... At a re I mean, when we launched, we were expensive, but by the time we had to put our price up 20 years later and we stayed at the same price for 20 years, we were no longer expensive. But those comparable bars of chocolate are now five or six pounds, and yet we are kind of around the two pound mark because they haven't got the economies of scale. So it's almost impossible, I would say, to find the quality and the, the ethics at our price point if you don't buy green and blacks. Mm. 
And how, as a brand, do you keep yourselves relevant to new consumers? You know, people who've been familiar with you and essentially gone through your journey, uh, they'll be devotees, but there'll be a whole range of new consumers from a different generation which perhaps are unfamiliar. Well, I would point anybody who doubts our relevancy to YouTube and the wildly, deliciously organic Green and Black's award-winning ad which came out last year, which is so out there and so amazing that actually it won various awards and it, it created a great stir because it's a very, very exciting piece of film. And that's how you do it, basically. So can we expect to see Green and Black's doing some crazy stuff on TikTok? Oh. Sorry, was that an exhausted sounding sigh there? <laughs> I think it might, might possibly have been, yeah. As long as I'm not involved, that's fine. So for people who are possibly cynical about the quality of products and, you know, the high prices that brands charge for them, how would you counter that by, you know, almost the platform that you come from in terms of strong ethics, sourcing with good provenance, etc.? How would you help to justify that price equation for people in their minds? I think they've just got to buy green and black, so it's that straightforward. And you've got the whole magical mix all at once, you know. Don't look elsewhere, just buy our chocolate. It's got everything. Was this and there's one of a your flavour for everyone. Um, no, but it might have been. <laughs> so, look, we talked earlier on about the, the, the traits which are necessary to, you know, really succeed in business. You know, clearly, you've been very successful and have been a trailblazer in your own industry. But if you could almost distill that and put that into a few simple words. What would you say are the qualities that are necessary to, you know, to really you know, go the distance with that idea that ultimately can take you to something which is really very well established? So I think you have to be able to stay extremely calm in very stressful uh, situations. And that is about finding a personal blueprint for wellness and mental health that will serve you when you have the inevitable low points and the crises and the firefighting and the just all the things that are wrapped up in running your own business, basically. You cannot be seen by your team to kind of fall apart. And so you've got to have a deep well inside you of something to draw on when things get tough, because they will. And if you don't, if you're not mentally equipped for that, then, you know, work for somebody else. and and or at least you know work on it because it's really important and one of the reasons i see people throwing in the towel is because they're exhausted they're just literally running on empty and for those people that you know may wobble or having some you know difficulties and sleepless nights is it that sheer driving sense of belief in what they're doing that, that keeps it going it's that but i think you also need a person you need um either a partner in life or a partner in business or a rock, perhaps a mentor that you can turn to when things get tough, use a sounding board, allow them to put the kettle on, make you a cup of tea, sit you down and say, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Craig did that for me a lot. And outside of the business world, and Greg clearly one of your most important members of the team, but outside of the business world, who do you most admire? And what are those special qualities you go, oh, blimey, that's, that person is an inspiration to me. I mean, Anita Roddick, the late Anita Roddick was my, was my great inspiration. But I mean, I read, I mean, read so many business books. I mean, it's, it's, you know, Richard Branson, it's a cliche. He's amazing. He just is innovative and hardworking and doesn't really care what other people think. He just is on a trajectory. 
but also many, 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 many small business entrepreneurs who I know. I'm a great supporter of shopping locally, putting the money back in your community. And every single one of those, I take my hat off to them because I know how hard it is to run a shop, to run a business, to run a small business, etc. So, so actually anyone who's got their own business is my hero. And look, the, the climate for establishing a business today is very different to what it was when you first started. Uh, the economics involved are clearly massively changed. How do you feel that either central or local government can offer more to other entrepreneurs, people like you who have a great idea and they have these, this dream for a future? What can government do more to try and make it easier and to promote local talent? Well, I think that one of the worst things they did was do away with the enterprise agencies, actually. And obviously, some have popped up again in a new guise, and it is incredibly valuable. I think one of the worst things that that happened was the closing of the local enterprise agencies. There was a very strong network around the country and they have popped up. They've, some of them are in different forms, etc. But they're very, very bad at publicizing what they do. And many, many entrepreneurs don't realize that their services are accessible and, and that there is that help out there. I think as a small business, you, you need to find out what help is available. And, and often it, there's more than you think, actually. Otherwise, you know, people have to rely on informal networking organisations. And does networking really work? I don't know if it works from a business point of view of, you know, gathering people's business cards or their iPhone details or whatever. What it does do is you go to an event or you go to listen to a speaker and it fires you up. It gives you that injection of energy to just keep going. And that's what you need. Well, Joe, thank you so much for our conversation. It has been really wonderful to chat together. Thanks for coming along to Spring Fair 2022 and being our guest on the Retail Exchange podcast. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting to be in a room with so many people and beautiful things and many of them with a sustainability message woven into them. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter. Hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.